Lose the Cape Podcast, episode 169. All right, ladies, it's time for another wonderful episode of the Lose the Cape Podcast, where we are bringing as many viewpoints and important issues to you as we can to help us all better understand what's going on in this um, crazy world that we live in. I am really excited to bring you Desiree Peter Kimbell. And when I say really excited, I mean really excited because I think we've had to reschedule this seven times <laughs> due to sick children and yes. unscheduled snowstorms and yes. <laughs> all kinds of craziness. And also Desiree is just a really busy woman. She she is truly walking the walk, not just talking the talk, and is very, very involved in helping uh, diverse women get elected into positions to make this world, our country, a better place, a more diverse and well-rounded place. Um, her official bio has so much goodness in it. We will post all of this on the website so that you can read through it. But she's a two-time best-selling author, an award-winning battle-tested political and communication strategist that world leaders, visionaries, and change agents turn to when they desire to not only build a rock-solid brand, but an enduring legacy with global impact. She is president and CEO of the public affairs firm, DP Bell & Associates, and she serves her clients by leveraging her hard work and expertise in problem-solving, crisis communication, strategic counsel, and brand development. So, you know, she's just a little bit busy. <laughs> so she's got a very impressive career, um, being driven by purpose, not position. Uh, she has always been very self-reliant and a critical thinker, and she has been the Director of Communications and Strategy for the City of Philadelphia um, and the former Mayor Michael Nutter. She was the Director of Communications for Newark, New Jersey, Mayor Cory Booker, whom by the time this goes live will probably have announced that he's running for president. I know that the rumor is out there. Um, she is, has been the VP of Government Affairs for New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg's administration. Um, so as you can tell, she, she knows a little bit about um, all of these topics. Uh, one thing that I, I, well, welcome Desiree. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited that I'm finally here. <laughs> yes, me too. I mean, I think there's so, 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 so many things to talk about between you and me. Um, I mean, the world is just absolutely nuts right now. <laughs> Where do we even start? It can be, yeah. There's a lot to chat about. <laughs> well, you know, I, so, so Desiree and I co-authored um, a book called Women Who Influence. I yes. think that was the one we were in together. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I had the opportunity to, I, I'd seen her posting and I was following her on Facebook. She does all these amazing things. And I remember this one day she posted, ladies, President Obama has a copy of our book. I gave him a copy of the book and I was like, holy crap, President Obama has a book that I'm a contributor to. And I was so excited. But I've been following you and seeing all the amazing things that you do. But I got to hear you speak at one of Kate Butler's events. And I was really, 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 really um, just blown away by your discussion of these chat and chews that you hold at your house and how important yeah. they are. So I'd like to start there. If you'll tell okay. us about these chat and chews, why you started them. Sure. Time. So I've been holding um, these chat and chews since the election, to be frank. And it was really cathartic and <laughs> healing for me. Um, I started them in small spaces, but then we quickly grew to other cities, other locations, and we've also had some outside of the U.S. 
the purpose of these chat and choose was to bring folks together to have honest, open dialogue about sometimes muddy issues, um, sometimes issues that make people feel uncomfortable, but with the thought of trying to find common ground. Mm -hmm. uh, and we put food in the middle of the table uh, to basically take the, um, the pressure off of folks feeling like, um, you know, they can't really be themselves. And more importantly, food is really good. Everybody has to eat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and it also allows the food to be a focal point as well of the conversation. Right. And so uh, the first chat and chew that I held was, um, I was not fully prepared for, but hmm. I learned a heck of a lot. Yeah. And it was after the election, uh, to be frank, this is when the numbers started coming out about who voted for who yeah. and um, opinions by many about why they voted for that person. Um, and the more stark uh, reality was the percentage of white women who voted for Donald Trump mm -hmm. um, versus the number of black women who voted for Hillary Clinton. Right. And I remember thinking, um, you know, that there's a disconnect here and I couldn't understand why. <laughs> um, we talk about the ideas of feminism, womanism, to be frank, um, and the idea of allyship uh, and accomplices. Um, but, you know, nothing rang more true when the numbers came out and it revealed that women in this country, number one, are not a monolithic group. We all knew that. Right. And I think that women in this country, particularly African-American women and white women, see the world very differently, yeah. or they can see the world very differently. Right. So the first conversation I had, um, it was a call I just put out, and uh, two interesting women uh, decided to be my first uh, significant participants. I had a number of other women participating in the first chat and chew, but it was a self-defined white nationalist woman and um, a, a member of Black Lives Matter, uh, a woman, African-American woman, very highly educated, um, but an activist and uh, someone who had been on the front lines at Ferguson and um, you know marching through the streets of New York City um, around Eric Gardner. Um, and so at the table, I also had a single mom. Um, I had uh, a law enforcement officer and um, a young person who um, had been in and out of uh, juvenile facilities, but was trying to uh, rebrand themselves essentially as being an influencer. And the conversation really focused on trying to find commonality among all of these various women who had very different backgrounds and beliefs. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was we were breaking perception and stereotypes at this first chat and chew in ways that I thought we needed to do on a much grander scale. Right. So the woman who was a self-defined white nationalist had been taught, given her community, that all black people were a certain kind of way. Right. Well, I mean she didn't really live around any other black people. <laughs> so, right, right. And everyone was telling her this. And so she was kind of shocked when 
the woman sitting across from her, the African-American activist woman who was involved in Black Lives Matter, went, you know, told her that she was a highly educated um, lawyer <laughs> who decided to become an activist when she saw um, injustices ha still happening in this country. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and they both had kids. And so we focused on well, what kind of world do you want to leave your kids? Right. Um, what do you want to teach your kids about compassion, about understanding? Um, what do you want? What kind of opportunities do you want your kids to have that you didn't have, um, regardless of your situation and context? Right. And what we found through these two women, and they still talk today. Wow. Um, they still challenge each other, which is awesome. Um, what we found was we were able through these small conversations completely disarm preconceived notions stereotypes and offer information that folks otherwise would not have had because they allow themselves to be number one vulnerable number two open and get information i just got such massive chills <laughs> up my arms and back and you know it's so important and i've heard you tell this story before so nothing you just said was a surprise yes. but it's still just as impactful and i think that um it, it's so true that like you you see these back and forth and these massive arguments i'm going to use facebook as an example because that's where it tends to happen because people i think treat each other in ways on social media that they would never do face to face but also you can't just come at people from a point of anger and the why i'm right and you're wrong and expect to make any difference because walls go up and it's you know but to sit face to face yes eating some really good food, yes. talking about, you know, how we want our children to be treated, understanding right. that what I've always been told about you as a person is not what I'm seeing here in this woman. Right. And, and then, and, and you know what? Big props to those two ladies for being big yeah, enough, you know, big enough to come outside because it's hard. It's hard to change your mind on things you've always, always, always learned. Um, it is extremely hard. It's also hard to be, I mean, at the end of the day, the reality is I don't know one person who walks around saying, I love being vulnerable. Vulnerable <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> it's not. You know, our, our natural inclination is to protect ourselves against vulnerability, is to protect ourselves against hurt, you know, and, yeah. and you know, it, it's also natural to, to be frank, to align yourself with people who have common interests, who right. might like you right. similar experiences because that's where you're comfortable exactly um, and so i always talk about being uncomfortable and being and having the freedom and having the courage to be uncomfortable yeah. because only in those spaces and places will you truly truly build um on, on trying to connect with people yeah uh you know i you have to you know i think um and I've had a lot of pushback. You know, there are a lot of people who are like, ah, oh, it's not my, you know, it's not my job to be uncomfortable. It's their job. I'm like, who's they? <laughs> right. Right. Well, that is an interesting segue because I want to go into the next part of this conversation, which is really talking about um, the role of women in supporting each other and how we can, because I, I think you totally believe, and I think, I know I totally believe that if we're going to see true change and true advances for women and the fact where we're dollar to dollar for men and all yes. these kinds of things, you know, it's so many issues where nobody's grabbing your butt in the coffee room at work and thinking it's funny or, right. you know, all these kinds of things, they're intersectional, which was a new word to me last year. And I'm glad that I learned it um, because when we help one woman 
grow and, and get better, we help all women, but because our issues are intermingled. Right. Um, so, so to, to, before I pass this back to you, um, like one of the things that I felt, um, I started posting, so I started posting some things about black lives matter and about, um, and I saw a lot of the pushback and I, I understand the pushback because so many people are still stuck in this mindset of if you're saying black lives matter, then you're saying I don't matter as a person and I can't get behind that. And they can't see that what you're actually saying is we have a real problem that affects this segment of our community. And we have to come together to see how we can fix that. We're not saying that you don't have problems. We're saying that this is a real problem that, that has to be addressed, right? But I, like you said, if people don't know, they don't know. And it's an education. It's a conversation type thing, which will not be cured on Facebook. But um, all that to say, like, I really, I started posting these things. And it was actually a, a black male or African-American. I don't want to use the wrong offensive terminology either. Oh. And I hear it from both sides. So, you know, please correct me. Speaking of being vulnerable and uncomfortable, if I use a, if I say something, I want to know that I'm saying something that's not, not good. Um, no, you're good. <laughs> was one of my friends from high school and he reached out to me and he said, I really appreciate the things that you've been posting. And it really makes me feel like there are people that still care. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get choked up here. <laughs> it was like, but it made me realize that the hurt, like yeah. the hurt that I will never understand that's going on. And so here's what I'm getting to. Like, I really, really, really want to support all women and women of color. And I really want to be an ally, as you said, but mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of stuff in the news about white women that are standing up as, you know, trying to get out there and support, but what they're really doing is putting, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of craziness happening. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question to you would be, how do we make that happen? How do we truly join forces? How do we truly, you know, connect? And how, how do I do that without being offensive or, or putting myself, you know, you, I think yeah. you might know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I, I understand completely. I will say that, I mean, the first step is the desire too, right? I yeah. mean, that's the first step, which um, there really is no step before that. It's you have to have a desire to understand. Right. Uh, and it's not, and I, and I want to be clear, there's a difference between being empathetic, sympathetic and understanding. Right. Right. Because I can be empathetic and sympathetic means I can feel sorry for you. I can be like, Oh, right. Or just understand. Right. Um, and understanding means that you have the context to be able to see things a little differently than you did before. Right. And so I think for, um, and I always, I always do this whenever I do uh, big uh, speeches around uh, bias. Um, and for those folks who say, I have no bias. And those folks who say, I, I, see I don't no see color. color. <laughs> I don't see color. Well, first of all, I'm like, unless you are colorblind, I get it. <laughs> but if you're not colorblind, that's problematic uh, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I mean, the fabric of our country is a big melting pot. Right. So if you don't see colors, that means you don't see the very rich ethnicity and diversity that makes up the bedrock of this country, right? right? You're completely ignoring all of that, right. Right. <laughs> all of its pain and all of its glory. So I always tell folks that words matter. Mm -hmm. Words are extremely important. Um, 
I always use this example when I do these speeches, which is I take uh, an African-American woman and a Caucasian woman. I dress them up the same, everything, same shoes, same, same outfit, everything. Um, the hair might be a little different uh, <laughs> for uh, some obvious reasons, um, but I tell them each to come into the room. And I say, one of these women is the CEO of a multi-million dollar Fortune 500 company, blah, 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 blah. And I run through these things. And the room is sometimes a mixed room, diverse room, sometimes it's an all white room, sometimes it's all black room. And it's interesting to see how many people automatically say the white woman is the boss. Right. Hmm. And then when I reveal who the boss is, um, then they're shocked, but quick to say, oh, but I... I didn't mean that. And I'm like, I, but I think, no, you didn't mean it, but there's a, a bias that you have right? that once you acknowledge, then you know where to begin to have hard, honest conversations about how to challenge your bias. Yeah. And I think, you know, the reality is um, sometimes really hard for people to get, right? I remember, I remember talking to a friend of mine who could not understand why my husband was stopped multiple times um, on, uh, when he was riding his car multiple times. And for us, it's like, you know what to do. Put your hands on the dashboard. I mean, it's a process, right? Right. And, you know, and we were, one time she was actually driving with us and she was upset and challenging the cop. And we were like, don't do that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that, please. Don't do that. You can do that, but you can't ride with us. Right. Right. And, uh, but it was, it highlighted for her the difference about how people see um, different people and the perceptions and the stereotypes and everything that goes along with that. Yeah. So I'll go back and answer your, your question initially, which is you have to first want to understand that the context, first have to understand, understand is one, okay. that context is key in everything. Right. So the idea of intersectionality is understanding that women are not a monolithic group. Right. The idea of intersectionality, intersectionality is also understanding that not one person is you, not one person is whole in just that one characteristic. We are right. uniquely and divinely created. So even a black woman um, who grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in the projects may be different from a black woman who grew up in Iowa. <laughs> I assure they're, you, they're, <laughs> I, I'm from Iowa. I assure you they're different for many reasons. <laughs> you know, and so I think the idea of intersectionality even cuts across race, but it's about socioeconomic background. It's about education. It's about um, even, you know, gender conforming ideals and ideas, right? It's, it's about everything. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we try to do with these chat and choose is have all these honest conversations with folks to tell them that, First, you have to understand that there is difference. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. And then once you understand, connect with that difference. Yeah. Right? So connect with someone who is not like you. Yeah. Connect with someone who has a completely different experience than you do. Because it's not about being sympathetic, empathetic. It's about understanding what they exist in, in terms of what their life is, the context that they must must navigate each and every single day and some of the struggles that exist in their life that may not exist in your own. Mm -hmm. Because I think when you understand that, um, then you can build unique relationships um, with other women and other people, to be frank. Um, 
you know, like you said, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, uh, the relationship between black uh, women and also just women of color and white women. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest misconception is, you know, um, some stereotypes that have existed in our time for a really long time. Number one, from, you know, as I have said, and these are generals, so I want to be real clear before anyone gets angry. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of white women have come to me and said, black women seem intimidating, seem aggressive, seem angry. Mm. And um, that, is, that is based in some historical misconception and stereotyping um, because I believe historically um, Black women have had to be um, strong mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and have often spoke, uh, often talked with a, a lot more authority. Right. Um, and, and are very um, uh, steeped in who they are because they've had to be. Right. And I think for a lot of white women who may not see themselves as, as strong or as confident um, for whatever reasons, and we can get into the history about why, um, you know, that is off-putting to them because they have no idea how to connect with that kind of authenticity, that kind of strength. Right. And so, and, and nor do they know what the entry point is, right? So instead of saying, wow, you come and you walk into the room and you just, yeah, say it like it is, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's often like, oh my gosh, she's so mean. I don't wanna... <laughs> You're so um, mean. <laughs> right. And on the other side too, you know, I think the stereotypes uh, with, uh, with white women are that, um, you know, they are not uh, willing to understand difference and are uh, sometimes willing to go with the flow right. um, as opposed to, you know, separating sometimes from their quote unquote whiteness right. and try to be uncomfortable. Right. Um, and so those two real, real uh, historical challenges need to be brought to the table as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, those are things that we try to bring to the table. We have to have honest conversations, um, with folks. I had a, a friend of mine, a white woman say, you know, she said, you know, Desley, you just seem whenever you speak, you just seem so passionate. She said that passion can sometimes be, uh, misinterpreted as anger. Mm. And I said, yeah, but that's who I am. And you know what? If you are angry, you have good reason to be. True, but, <laughs> but, then I'm, you know, but then I can be angry too, you know? Yeah, I mean, no, I, think, I, I hear your point, and we see this a lot with women in gen across, uh, across the board. Like, if a woman gets passionate about anything, people are oh, it's a wrap. she's out of control. She's out of control. <laughs> it's like, why can't I just be? I mean, did you see Lindsey Graham at the Kavanaugh hearing? Oh, my, like, yeah. Let's not talk about passion. Did you see Brett Kavanaugh? Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so to your point of understanding, like I, to be very honest, like I try, I'm an empathetic person. I, I, I am an empath and I try really hard to hear people's stories and to understand like where they came from um, and, and why things are the way they were. But I think the first time that I truly, truly, truly might have glimpsed a tiny bit of what it's like to be an African-American woman in this country was the severe disappointment that I felt after those hearings went through and they nominated him anyway. 
for women across the board, like just that disappointment that we don't matter. And it struck me, I was like, this must be what it feels like every time another teen, unarmed, Mm-hmm. African-American young man is gunned down someplace and every time the police officer only goes to jail for five days even though you know or whatever it may, you know it must be this must be what it feels like all the time and it really like struck me on how like I wanted to go bury my head under the sand and not come out for a week because I felt so disappointed in our society that we could say this behavior is okay and it doesn't really matter. He's going yeah. to do it anyway. Um, so, you know, I don't, obviously, I don't know what it's like to feel that every single day, but it gave me a tiny glimpse, I think. And it, it made me really realize that we do have to, and, and my podcast co-host that you didn't get to meet today, she said in one of our interviews one time, you know, that she thinks that uh, the strongest role of the white woman is helping uh, African-American women get to be where they need to be and then stepping back. And I don't know if helping is the right word. I don't want yeah, to sound, I know like, you, mean. you know, you know, yeah. help using the privilege for lack yeah. of other word that we have to, to, to be the voice until they can be the voice and then yeah. shutting up. Yeah. I, it was, yeah. So I was just going to say that. I mean, even during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, I will say this, and you still got to be in your environment and go home and live your life. Right. right. And so that didn't change. Right. So I always caution and it's funny because there was a Saturday Night Live skit that was made and was hilarious after the election where, um, you know, it was a, I think it was a election night party and there were two African-American men there and there were like four uh, Caucasian folks there and they were, and all the Caucasian folks were completely like dumbfounded, baffled, sad, crying, (laughs) saying, oh my God, this country's so racist. And then the two African-American men who were there uh, were like, yep. Yep. (laughs) We know. <laughs> um, and I think, so I, I also caution folks a couple different ways. One is, so I always tell people, you cannot experience what the other, quote unquote, you know, what the African-American man, what the African-American woman, what the woman of color, what the person of color experiences. Right. Um, and so that's just, it, that's just not how it works. But what you can do is understand. So I do go back to understanding, right. which is, I think what um, what uh, is very true is if we can find a, if we can find accomplices, and I want to get into the difference between alliance, uh, ally, and good, an accomplice. Good, good. If we can find accomplices, then we are better suited to dismantle the uh, a lot of times the structures that seek to oppress mm-hmm. the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the less fortunate often the voiceless, often the, um, the folks who don't have the power. Mm-hmm. But that has to be work that has to be done uh, together. The difference between an ally and accomplice for me, and I've written about this and you know, it's been quite controversial, um, is, is this. So there was a friend of mine, and I think I, I mentioned this before, who wore a safety pin when the safety pins were the thing, right? So it was, <laughs> Um, people wanted to highlight, uh, Caucasian people wanted to highlight to people of color and black people that they were in fact allies. And so they wore a safety pin so that people of color, black people can see it and say, oh, you're an ally. I did not support that at all for a couple different reasons. 
I don't need a safety pin to tell me that you understand my cause, my plight, right. uh, and that you're willing to be, to, you know, to be quite frank, in the trenches with me. Right. I need you to challenge right. the structure that you exist in every single day, and I need you to be uncomfortable. So a friend of mine was texting me on Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving after election, that her racist father kept saying a whole bunch of things. He was so happy that Trump was elected because finally this wall is going to be coming up to stop all these people from coming in and all this stuff. And she's texting me, but she's texting me that she doesn't support this. And I can't believe I'm here at Thanksgiving. And I told her, don't text me. Stop Tell texting him. me. Tell him. Tell your father. Right. Right? Like that's helpful to me. Right. Challenging your people in your community is helpful to me. Right. Staring at me in my face and telling me that you're wearing a safety pin, that you're an ally doesn't help because an accomplice means that you have some skin in the game. Right. That's what it means. It means that you are willing to be uncomfortable. It means that you are willing to have conversations with people who don't look like you. It means, you know, and this is a tall tale sign all the time, is like it means that you are willing to invite someone at your dinner table who does not look like you. Yeah. When your girlfriends are going out, you have girls night out, look around your room and see who your girls are. Yeah. Right? It's helpful for me if you're willing to have someone part of that group, be someone that you historically have not had anything in common with, but you're willing to invite into your place and space to learn and understand, I should say, to understand about the context in which they exist and the life that they live. Right? Like that is helpful. Yeah. Um, and, and these are the things I always challenge people to do. And folks are like, oh, but it's so hard. Well, it, if it, it was hard. <laughs> if it was easy, nobody would do it, right? Nobody <laughs> would do it. Everybody would do it. That's what I meant. <laughs> and like I said, nobody walks around saying, I'm going to be vulnerable today. Today is going to be awesome. I'm going to let all the things come to me. You know, it, it's interesting um, because I live in Columbia, South Carolina, which is a very weird combination of people, to be quite honest, because yeah. we have some, yes. yeah, we have some super, some a small segment of super progressive people. And, and, and we have multiple military bases, multiple major universities here. So there's a lot of diversity, but if you really get down to it and, and we coexist together fairly well, mm -hmm. fairly well. But if you really get down to it and you really look at things, you can tell if you're willing to look at things that there is an underlying racism under almost everywhere that's pervasive. And um, it's challenging because getting out there and figuring out what it is you do, how you make those changes, what you, but I'll give you a good example. Like I, we have, a, a, our, my school district is what's called school choice. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, you can choose, you can, you can go through the lottery process to change to like, if you're zoned for one elementary school and you want your kids to go to this other elementary school, you can fill out an application. The catch is you have to be able to provide transportation to and from and all those kinds of things. To me, I feel like underlying that is a very racist structure because it's, it, and maybe not just black, white, mm -hmm. but haves haves not yes it allows people with more means to pull themselves from a school where they feel like and th the reason usually is because they don't like 
the structure of the other right. people there. Nobody will come out and say that. Actually, right. I have, actually, I have heard people say that before. I have heard people straight up say, I didn't want my kid to go to that school because there weren't as many kids that looked like my kid. Mm. And it wasn't an African-American woman that said that. Um, so, you know, the, 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 you see these kinds of things and it's like, I've been very vocal about the fact that I hate the school choice program and that we're going where we're zoned. And if we don't like where we're zoned, then we'll move. but we have again we have the ability to do that so that's like i don't know it fires me up but i I love the fact we lived in a very diverse neighborhood i love the fact that my kids have grown up with very diverse friends and and have been exposed from the smallest of age to people that are different than them because racism isn't something you're born with it's something you learn 100 percent you know, I, know. I mean, when kids and you know this, right? When kids are in the sandbox and they're playing, they the only thing they care about is who has the toy. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what color the kid is who has the toy. Mm-hmm. It matters who has the toy, and I want the toy. That's right. I <laughs> That's love. I, I have three kids, and every year, I've every year as they've gone through kindergarten, I've been the chaperone on the zoo trip, and I love chaperoning kindergartners because they love everybody hugs doesn't matter what you look like who you are you just get hugged and loved on and that's what been one of my favorite experiences and my question to you is how do we how do we do that as adults how do we because i i understand i mean i also understand my biases i also Mm -hmm. understand that in order to be part of the solution i also have to back down off of some of my defenses and stop saying, but I had a hard life too, but I worked really hard too, but yeah. I deserve this too. Yeah, yeah, I did. I've worked my hiney off, but guess what? It was never a question if I was going to college. I've never gone to bed. Right. Hungry. I've never worried about not getting something because of the color of my skin. Right. You know, so, so I, I guess my, my final big question to you, because we're running short on time, my final big question is, the concept of white privilege has, I think, a lot of white people baffled because they see it as saying they're privileged, as in like wealth and all of these kinds of things. And right. That's, that's where people go. They say, I didn't grow up a privileged life and we've lost the idea of, but you did. But from your perspective, like, I don't know, maybe we need to change the term. Maybe it's like this whole global warming climate change. Like you can't bring people on board with global warming because they don't understand it. So they had to change it to climate change. I don't know. <laughs> you don't want to say like, how do you, how, how do you wow. deal with it? <laughs> right? no, I, I mean, I think it's, so it's going back to what you said, which is I think the definition of privilege is not that people, it's not about the wealth that they had. It's about perception mm-hmm. and it's about access. Yeah. That's what it's about. And so when people, when we talk about white privilege, there's a whole conversation around, around, and it's very simple, right? And I go back to the two women walk into the room, black woman, white woman, who's the CEO? Right. 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 A black man and a white man, a, a black man and a white man are both driving down the same highway. Who do you think will get pulled over? Right. A, uh, and I've done this study too, which is, it's always interesting, which is the African-American young boy with his pants sagging, and then the Caucasian boy with some chains and a whole bunch of tattoos, 
on itself. Who do you think people are going to um, hide their purses from? Right. Right? I, I mean, for both. <laughs> I tell people all the time, men in general scare me, which is a bigger conversation. <laughs> but, yeah. but the privilege is understanding that despite your socioeconomic status, despite your education, despite your parental, your you know, single parent home, both parent home, there's still a perception that people will judge you differently. Mm-hmm. People will treat you differently you will have access to certain things, right? And then we, you know, cause I can, I can talk about this forever. You get into the whole conversation about what happened in the drug wars in the nineties and what's happening now, you know, around opium and, and meth, and, right? And access uh, in different communities and why, right? I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But the idea of white privilege, and I think that's what people have to, and that's where people get defensive, right? It's not that, it's not the idea and it's not the definition that you had an easy road. Right. It is the reality that your road was easier. Right. Right. Than someone who would be in the same position of a darker hue. Right. And that is a reality. Unfortunately. Yeah. Until bias changes, until there's no discrimination, until there's no racism in this country, that is a reality that people have to understand. Right. You know, and I, I, you know, I, I'm a mother of a 10 year old who's a gymnast. Um, and there are certain realities. My daughter was not conscious about race at all, to be frank, until she started competing in gymnastics. Oh, wow. And it was a conversation, not that she, you know, all of a sudden realized, oh my gosh, I'm different, but it was other kids telling her that her ponytail didn't flop like theirs did, Mm. right? Because her hair is natural. She has a big, beautiful bun afro. Mm -hmm. That's how she competes, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a reality. So her um, teammates have the privilege of not being asked that question. Right, right. That's such a a great, like... (laughs) visualization of what the difference is when you really, when you really boil down to it. Um, There was the article in the news about the kid, uh, the wrestler with the dreads, who was basically forced to shear his dreads right off right there. And I posted that article and I was very, very disappointed in some of the responses that I saw about how it's a sports rule and it's this and it's that. And I'm like, but what, and he could have chosen to, to, um, to leave the competition. What athlete is going to say, I'm going to forfeit my match. Mm -hmm. Of course he made the only choice that he thought he could make at that time. Of course he did. And what other white kids been forced to shave their head off in front of everybody before they, well, I don't know if it was done in public or not, but either way, you know, yeah, so it's it's those situations where you have to take a step back and say, and the, all the people that were said rules are rules. How many times did that ref not pay attention to somebody else's hair and whether or yep. not it fit perfectly within the regs? Hundred percent. Or I even the funny thing that I always say is, you know, or just go to an expensive store. It happens. It happened to Oprah Winfrey mm-hmm. <laughs> when she was outside of this country. Um, you know, the idea that, oh, if you look a certain way, you look suspicious, right? You can't afford to purchase anything in this store or 
and maybe you're looking to steal something. Right. Right. And I think that's a, so that's privilege, which is, you know, there are some women who could walk into stores and no one will follow them. Right. You know, I always have to be cognizant of that. Yeah. Right. Like I, I have to be cognizant of that. I always try to dress up (laughs) when I'm going to, and these are realities, right. And this is something that, you know, I think, um, when we talk about privilege, you have the privilege of not having to think about that and not having to think about that. So this is a small thing, but I saw this after I watched this video of an African-American man with long dreads. He was an older man and it was the sweetest video I've ever seen, but he was like, Hey, my name is Harvey. I'm terrified of spiders. I like big hugs, you know? And it was just like him making himself a real person. And it was, you know, part of this. And, and he said something like, I don't like it when women grab their purses and run from me when they Mm. see me, you know? So I've started making a point. This is just a, a stupid, silly little thing. But when I see somebody who might intimidate me, I smile at them. Mm. as I pass by I just try I just you know to just try and be be something and I'll tell you there are some scary looking white biker dudes that (laughs) but but, you know I try to just like you know smile and move on my way but I want to end this with just for in case it hasn't become super clear to people as they've been listening if you could help a woman today who's listening to this that really wants to be part of the solution not the problem a few things that she can truly do. And I know you've covered understanding. I think we got that. We have to learn how to understand, but is there anything else that someone can do to truly be an accomplice? Yes. Don't be afraid to be uncomfortable. And a lot of it starts, you know, with podcasts like this, to be frank, which is having open conversations. Number one, reaching out first step. Right. Um, And number two, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, allowing yourself to, ask questions. Um, now I want to be clear, not everyone will be receptive, right? right. People are people. Right. So I always say that you're going to have some folks who are like, it is not my job to teach you. Mm-hmm. Read a book, look it up. <laughs> yeah. However, <laughs> there are folks, um, and I have, you know, taken this mantle who want to at least provide context for folks, right? So that we can have a starting point so that we can potentially launch you know launch from the same pad and make as much impact as possible yeah um and so i would say the first thing really is to reach out allow yourself to be vulnerable listen Mm -hmm. and then you have to figure out what those next steps are going to be for you after that for some people it may be hosting their own chat and choose with folks who don't look like them around their own dinner table for others it could be reaching out and having conversations with folks also who don't look like you on a regular basis or sharing information and trying to get their perspective and understanding their opinion on certain things. But I think that's a personal decision. I think the first thing, like I said, is the ability to reach out, uh, understand uh, that context and experiences are different. Um, And number three, being vulnerable. Yeah. I think we could talk about this topic for days on days on end, but I know you've got to go. Um, Where can people find you so they can follow all of your stuff and see what you're doing? You're supporting some incredible women that are coming up um, that will be running for election, which is great. How can we get involved in all of that? Yeah. So I, um, you can follow me on my website, which is uh, DP Bell or Desiree Peter Gabell 
Uh.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm very active at DP Bell. Um, and you can follow uh, DP Bell Chat and Choose. That's also our Twitter account. My Facebook is DP Bell and Associates. There we post often a lot about what we're doing in the field, trying to connect women, building coalitions, identifying accomplices, and having some hard conversations um, that allow women to be both vulnerable but impactful. Well, I hope you will consider us lose the cape an accomplice. Yes. Um, yes. If there's anybody you want to send our way to have their voices heard to our community, we would love to um, interview other women who are fighting this good, good fight. Excellent. I will do. Thank, and thank you. Thank yes. you. You're amazing for, you know, <laughs> opening up this podcast and having, having me on. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time so much and everything you just said. And, and I can't wait to see what happens in the next two years. And I'm just going to say, go women, because if we would get together, Beyonce would be right. We would rule this world. Right? Rule this world, girls. <laughs> Thanks, Desiree. Thank you. Would love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can hop on over to losethecape.com forward slash podcast forward slash 169 and either comment on the blog post there. You can go to the Facebook page. It's just Lose the Cape on Facebook. You can come join your mom squad, which is our our, our not secret, but our private group on Facebook where we talk about these types of issues with people who want to talk about them. Our sponsor this week 